Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast called Frontier Faith. It's a podcast where it's okay not to know. So we decided to call this podcast Frontier Faith because we both found ourselves on a kind of frontier. Um, We had discovered that we had some pretty significant questions about our backgrounds and our theologies that we'd been raised in, and they brought us to some uncomfortable places, but places we thought we kind of had to really investigate. And so that's the frontier we're on now is saying, what do we believe? What does it mean? What are the effects of those beliefs and where does it lead us? And so our hope is that you will explore that frontier with us. And my name is Nathan Whitaker. And my name is Ryan Harris. And we're two friends from seminary and from doctorate work, and we're going to be talking about salvation. And salvation is, uh, we, we tried very hard to figure out some of the big things that really impacted our life growing up. We've already talked about the Bible. We've talked about church and culture. And this is probably one of the last big ones. There are several others that we are going to be talking about. But in terms of uh, covering the scope of what our life was like uh, growing up, salvation is is probably, it might even be the biggest. I don't know. Bible is pretty big, but this might be the biggest. And as we usually have, we are going to talk about how we uh, inherited a certain understanding of what salvation is. And then we're going to talk about how sometime sometime along our journey as we discovered that our inherited meaning didn't quite match up with what we were seeing and experiencing and thinking about. And then finally, we're going to explore a bit with you what it might look like now, what we might believe now. It's kind of hard to say it that way because um, we don't really define things according to belief like we used to, but where we are exploring salvation and what it means for us now. And so we're going to start by asking a very simple question, and I'm going to ask Ryan this question, and I want you to answer yourself when you hear this question, because it's really important. It's, it's a question that we probably don't think much about too often. And here it is. The question is, what is salvation? And, you know, it's funny, as we were talking about this, this is something that I we've discovered, at least I've discovered, and I think Nate has too, but it was so fundamental to the systems we lived in, and yet it's still kind of hard to define, you know? Um, but I think, so I, you know, I grew up in the Pentecostal side of Christianity, and the salvation that I, or as I understood it, was really, I think, being made right with God and forgiven of sins and and those kinds of things and being um, making Jesus your Lord. So so this idea of surrender to his um, authority is I think, I think I would use those to kind of encapsulate the idea, but to kind of just break that down a little bit, there was this idea that those who were Christians knew Jesus and submitted to Jesus and did what he said we should do and and not what we shouldn't do and those kinds of things. And they were saved, right? They were saved from hell. They were saved from sin and darkness. And now they were Christians. The people, any person who did not believe in Jesus, who did not confess their faith in Christ, who did not um, live the way that they're supposed to, well, they were what we called the lost, right? Because if they persisted in this lost condition, they're our, like our destination was heaven and their destination, eternally speaking, was hell. And this was the idea, um, I think, that drove a lot of this understanding of salvation. And so the way that happened, though, was there's this idea of, I can't remember all of the scriptures because I don't really like this anymore, but this idea of we're supposed to use this this tool in evangelism called the Romans Road. And it's five, oh, script- yeah. five scriptures from Romans where it it quote unquote, lays out how to be saved, right? The foundational one being, I think, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, right? So for us, the thing that was instrumental to salvation was that belief, but also, and, and especially that verbal prayer, that confession, God, I'm a sinner. Um, I've done terrible things. I know I can't be forgiven on my own. I need you to forgive me, and I submit my life to you, or something, something like that. 
you know. And then if that were to happen, there's much celebration and everybody's happy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They yeah. even talk about angels having a party in heaven, you know, um, rejoicing when a sinner came home is, is this idea. Um, and I think that was kind of the uh, that idea. But that the only other thing I would add was that in that, you know, may have noticed that there was you know, I have to believe, yes, but I also have to say the words, in which case there was very much an element of I have to consciously decide, you know, to surrender myself to Christ. Um, there's even a song, you know, called I have decided to follow Jesus, you know, no turning back, you know, the all this kind of stuff, because that was a very fundamental part of it, too. I had to assent. I had to give God control because we didn't believe that God would take it from us. So for those of us that might not know, can you talk about the Romans Road a little bit? Yeah, so the Romans Road was a, it was always kind of billed as a, a tool for evangelism, right? So something you could use when you were, um, quote, witnessing to people. So you were telling them the gospel in hopes that they would get saved, right? That they would make the same decision that I had just talked about. And I, I won't read you all of the scriptures, but there are five scriptures from the book of Romans, you know, and the idea is the first one is that all of us are sinners. And then we get eternal life from God as a gift through Jesus Christ, right? So the wages of sin is death, you know, that part. Mm -hmm. God died for us while we were still sinners in Romans 5. And in order, though, for this gift like to be fully accepted, in order for us to receive eternal life, we have to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. That part has to take place. And then that gives you that prayer, that um, confession gives you your assurance of salvation. It lets you know that now you are right with God. Now your destination is heaven and not hell where it was before. Okay, interesting. So for me, uh, the equivalent to the Romans Road is, uh, I've Googled it, it's called God's Plan of Salvation. I'm sure it's called something else. Um, it was huge on on my college campus, and it was something that really was closer to Lutheran. And funny enough, because Romans Road, but you would think that'd be Lutheran. But hey, you guys one, love Romans three, don't I you? Know. <laughs> we do. So it starts with Romans three, but it's this image of a man on a cliff, and there's another cliff on the other side, and God is there, and. It starts by saying you're a sinner and you're separated from God. It says then that sin brings death and judgment. And so the man usually looks sad or maybe sometimes if they're really graphic, they kill him. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a third. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. And so usually it shows the man trying something, whether that's building a bridge or the one I'm looking at now, he's jumping, um, but it's not too far. And then it comes to the gift uh, that there is a gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And what happens is a cross gets put in the gap. Mm. And then the man goes across the um, bridge to God. And sometimes um, decision theology is in that, such as what you described. Other times it's not. Lutherans would not have that there. Um, it would just be that God has created this path for man, and uh, by the creation of the path itself means that man has been saved. That's kind of how we we had that in our tradition. Which, to be fair, I've never totally understood the distinction, but that's that's fine. It doesn't matter for what we're talking about today. Yeah, so um, what what was striking to me as we were talking beforehand is we have similar ways of expressing this, yet, um, I'm sorry, similar beliefs, yet different ways of expressing it. And so the way that we really expressed it as Lutherans, and it came up in our conversation, and we'll talk about it here, but it came up as um, a three-step process. One is contrition. You have to feel bad about your sin. Two is repentance. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The way you do that is by saying that you're a poor, wretched sinner, um, which is... <laughs> Sorry, I'm not true. laughing at it. It's just, That was a I'm not surprised laugh. That's yeah. what that was. 
Yeah. Um, and then three, uh, there's forgiveness. So forgiveness is given. And of course, forgiveness is always linked to eternal life, grace, all the abundant gifts that Jesus gives. And that was basically our structure. And in fact, Lutherans have this thing at the beginning of every service, what we call confession absolution. And it was a big thing that Luther wanted to get done to remind us of the justification. And, you know, we can kind of debate maybe at another time. I'm not sure Luther meant it this way. Um, I don't know. But the idea is before you go to God, he comes to you in forgiveness, but you have to kind of play this out. And so every worship service, it would start with, literally, if it was the written uh, confession, those literal words, I'm a poor, wretched sinner, poor, miserable sinner, and then asking God to forgive us. And then the absolution part of that would be always the assurance that God does forgive because he always will. And that was what salvation was for me, is playing out this almost script. I don't want to say it, it doesn't feel that way. And that when I was going through this, when I was living that, it didn't feel like a script all the time. It felt like, you know, normal reality. That's what it felt like. But it, it certainly did have that, I'll say cadence to it. It had that cadence to it of feeling bad, saying that we are sinners, and then receiving forgiveness. Hmm. Yeah. It, you know, as you were talking about that, it reminded me of another uh, silly evangelism tool, which was the ABCs of salvation. And A was admit, right? Admit that you are a sinner. B was believe that Jesus is Lord and, and you know, and C was confess your sins, right? And if mm. you do those three things, you're good, right? You're saved, um, as long as it's genuine, of course, you know, yeah, yeah. they would talk yeah. about how if you just said the prayer and didn't mean it, it didn't mean anything. Well, and our, our fancy word for that, and Brian, of course, you know this, but that's where contrition comes in. You right. actually have to feel bad for your sins and um, feel bad is kind of a gloss. Uh, it's it's a gloss for a quick way of saying you've contemplated what you've done. You recognize that what you've done has harmed you and harmed your relationship with others and God. And as a result, you don't want that. And right. so. I yeah. say feel bad to cover that whole little process that happens in um, in confession. Well, and you know, it's interesting, though, as you were talking about how every service you had the uh, confession or absolution, you know, or, or and absolution, or I think about like the Catholics who go to confession on whatever basis they do, depending on the person, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. I don't know that anyone ever taught me this, but I remember having this idea of not saying definitively that that wasn't genuine, but I used to wonder because I said, is it genuine if it's a ritual like that? Of course, right. that ignores the fact that the way I did it was just as much of a ritual, but yeah. you know, I didn't realize that when I was 18 or whatever it was. But yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because like you said, in some ways we come at this from different angles and there are nuances that are different, but the core of it seems very similar to me. Yeah, very similar. And in fact, I would say it's probably similar across the board. There, there are different flavors to it, as we use that word often. My Catholics, they will, they would say something pretty different, but at its core, um, contrition is a word that comes from Catholicism before there is such a thing as Protestantism. So they still have those same rhythms as well that we have around this. And so that's why this is a big one, because pretty much anybody who would be listening to this who is familiar with Christianity to pretty much any degree would have some notion of this basic story of salvation. When I say story, I mean, I'll say it the way I do, basic logic of salvation. It's not the story. The story is what Jesus did and how that all played out. It, the logic of salvation starts with Adam and Eve, uh, original sin and all that. Um, we have that, and so we feel bad about our sin. We bring that sin to God, and he responds kindly and graciously in forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us. 
Right, because of Christ's death and resurrection. Well, I don't know if you guys always put the resurrection in there in in terms of this part of salvation, but but yeah, because of for us it was because of Christ's death and resurrection. That's what makes this all possible. This is, in fact, I think they'd say why Jesus had to die, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, like they'd use the verse, and I think it's First Corinthians is it fifteen where Paul says, "If Christ has not been raised, you're still dead in your sins." Right. Yeah, so if these right. things had not happened, we'd still be without hope, or we'd still need the law and the sacrificial system because, or something like that, you know, but those things were, it was dependent upon what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. So then that begs, that that brings me to the question, it doesn't beg a question, it brings me to a question. That's what salvation is, and we didn't talk about it this way beforehand, but what does, why do we need salvation? Hmm. You know, I'm not sure what the official answer is. And, you know, that's tough because just like any other group, when you say Pentecostal, that's a wide umbrella. (laughs) But I think I'll just talk for me why we needed salvation was because salvation, primarily the way I saw it, was what kept me safe from hell, right? The reason I needed to be forgiven for my sins was because that was how I knew that God would let me go to heaven. And that's not quite the way to put it. That's how I knew that I wouldn't have to go to hell. Now, I don't expect that anyone who taught me these things, that that was their goal, that that would be what I took away from it, you know? Mm -hmm. But because of my personality and my family life and, you know, all a few other factors, what salvation was, and even like, not just for me, but like, I felt this intense pressure to quote, lead other people to Christ, right? To witness, to preach the gospel to non-believers, the lost, because I didn't want them to go to hell. I even remember, you know, in what I now think was probably a form of spiritual abuse, (laughs) um, like as a kid hearing you know, in kids church or wherever at Sunday school or wherever it was, this this idea that like if you don't tell your friend and they die and go mm-hmm. to hell, like yeah. And there was even like, or there was like this awful play I had to go to one time as a kid. It was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. I don't know if you ever yeah. heard of that. Yeah. Um, and I went when I was like ten, and it traumatized the. I I, it was terrible, right? The hell out of was, you. Yeah. And one of the little vignettes or one of the little scenes in that was where somebody who was on their way to hell as the demons were dragging them into hell was saying, why didn't you tell me? Right. Oh, gosh. You know, and like this is what salvation was for in my mind. It was, yeah, I guess I I need to live for God. Sure. Yes. And, and you know, I love God, but or so I said, <laughs> but the yeah. the thing that I really focused on because I was so terrified was salvation was what saved me from hell. Yeah, so for me, that was definitely part of it, although we didn't really, uh, something that does distinguish our traditions is we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about hell. Maybe it's because we're German passive aggressive. I just kind of <laughs> thought of that. <laughs> Maybe. Like, don't forget, there's still this hell thing behind you. It was more for us, it was that salvation was from our sins. We talked about that like crazy. Salvation is from our sins. And there wasn't the connection that I would make today there, which we'll get to a little bit later. But for us, it was really like the image that I didn't have this image growing up, but the best image that I can think of right now is that you have this backpack or this thing on top of your back. And every single time you sin, it weighs you down and it weighs you down. It weighs you down. And that weight could crush you. It could kill you. And whenever you uh, would confess, you would be relieved of that pressure, not because you were converted and saved anew each and every time, but you. we have this thing called the means of grace in Lutheranism, and those are channels in which we receive God's grace for our daily life. And it's it's like receiving salvation in a non-conversion way. It's just receiving God's grace. And so for me, it was freedom from our sins because each and every time I would go to church, I would have this weight on me that I would have to get rid of. And I would get rid of by following that procedure, that formula, if you will, that ritual, as Ryan said, and then have it relieved from me at least for the minute that I didn't think between that and the next sin that I did. 
And um, that for me was what it was freedom from. It was really freedom from hell, yes, but mostly from the weight of the sins. And you can probably call that guilt, I would probably say shame. The shame of being a sinner, the shame of holding on to those sins, and the fear that somebody's going to find out what those sins are. You know, for me, Jesus was like God, not Jesus. God was like an evil Santa Claus. It's like he's always watching. Oh, he sees you when you're sleeping. Huh? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And so whenever we would go, it would be part of this ritual that I'd have to tell him because he's always watching. So I had to be completely and utterly honest. Otherwise, I wouldn't get my presents at Christmas, you know? Well, and and I imagine this was true for you, too. But it wasn't just he saw what I did when I was awake. It was he knew what I was thinking, right? He knew my every thought I ever had. So it also I had to not think the wrong things either, because if I did, that was Mm, just bad. Right. So no wonder I was a nervous wreck all the time. But um, I sort of said this, but I just thought one other element for me, which I don't think was true for Nate, was, um, in fact, I know it wasn't, was that um, because of other things in our theology about how salvation works, specifically this idea that I have to decide to follow Jesus, that I have to um, consciously choose to repent for it to be a real thing. I was always worried that my salvation didn't hold, right? It it, it didn't last. Like mm. I could sin enough so f- to the point where I was too far from God and no longer saved, you know. And we'd yeah. have terms like backslidden or or whatever. Um, and so for me, <laughs> I was getting saved every service, and I was getting saved every day. Practically, I was saying some variation of that Romans prayer because I was terrified that I had done, I had enough bad thoughts, or I'd done enough wrong things that week, or that day, or that hour. <laughs> depends on what it was, you know, that I was no longer safe. Is that what the altar call is? Often, right? Now, um, altar calls were usually part of a like salvation call. You know, often a pastor would preach a sermon and would often try to put some kind of opportunity to uh, get saved at the end, right? And what mm-hmm. a lot of them would do, um, not everybody, but what a lot of them would do would, if you prayed that prayer, they'd have you come down to the front to where the altar was, right? As right. like a public confession of what you'd just done internally. And sometimes they'd even say things like, you can't be ashamed of what you just did or it doesn't count. Not in that way, right? But (laughs) it was very emotionally manipulative um, in that sense of like, and I know even even when I bought into all of this theology, every part of it, I was like, wow, you're really working, making this really hard for people to do something that's already difficult to do, (laughs) you know? Well, the ones that I've been to, the altar calls that I've been to, they would do it for initial salvation, and then they would also say, you know, if you've been struggling with sin, and so... If you're too far, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the phrasing. Um, Maybe even black backsliding was something that came in. Yep, if you're far from God, if you're not living your life for Jesus anymore, if you've walked away from God, that's a big phrase that you'd hear. You know, even to the point of like you could have found yourself like it's not always like I made a deliberate apostasy, you know, like I just said, I'm done with all this. But often it was more dangerous was this idea that you could drift away and not realize until you were really far away. They use the idea of being lukewarm, as it talks about in Revelation at the beginning and getting spewed out of God's mouth. You know, I forget what church he says that to, but but that idea. It's interesting. So here's something that I'm considering, I'm thinking about. So I said to you that we start with confession absolution. What I didn't say is that in order for that system to work, at least the way that it worked on me, was what I heard the rest of the service was basically ways in which I could be sinning. (laughs) I heard different things around, um, you know, because... one of our one of our um, professors would say that the confession absolution was actually a cyclical thing throughout our worship services. That depending on what parts of the service that you have and how long it is, that you can have anywhere between in a in a Lutheran service three to seven cycles of confession and absolution. Hmm. And he was saying this as critiquing it and saying, you know, 
how about we do something more with this? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But he would say, you know, part of the sermon when it came to the sermon was to enact this cycle once again. And so me sitting out there, you know, and I'm dealing with my own issues with sin and, and how I see that, I notice it happens twice, three times, and it happens in the sermon. It then happens at Lord's Supper where we uh, confess, we do the whole thing. We confess our sins and we realize we're poor, miserable sinners, and then we go back up and we receive Christ's body and blood and we get that forgiveness. And uh, so I, I live through this cycle there, and it sounds like you, maybe not, maybe it wasn't as routine for you, but it sounds like whenever there was the altar call and that kind of thing in the mix, you had a cycle. It was just different. It was that you had maybe all that stuff before and then you're to, and I'm being very unfair because I'm just trying to put it in my words. um, Your confession and absolution happened at the end of the sermon. So that way you could leave feeling assured that um, as much as you could, that you are saved. Yes, definitely. And now not Excuse me, not every message or every sermon was just about that, right? And but um generally speaking, or I should say a lot of times, that would be how you'd end a you'd, you'd end a message. Like the sermon would be structured so as to give people an opportunity for salvation at the end of it, or something like that. And I yeah. even remember as part of that, one person saying, you know, you don't know what could happen. You could leave here and get hit by a truck and die. And don't <laughs> yeah. don't want to be uncertain about where you're going. I mean, they literally say it that way. But yeah. yes, this this very much was a way for confession and absolution. We just never would have called it that because, you know, we didn't use it that that vocabulary that way. But yeah, um, it wasn't the same cyclical like um you know, as part of our service, we didn't necessarily have that in every song or um, in other parts, you know, and communion. Um, there was often an element of, you know, confessing your sins so that, you know, not so as not to take it in an unworthy manner or whatever Paul says in Corinthians there, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't quite the same, you know, cycle that you describe of guys, you're really bad, but you're really forgiven, but you're still really bad, but you're yeah. really forgiven, you know. Well, that same professor, he would say, um, and I think you probably know who he is, but he would say the good, or not good, um, quote unquote good, most Lutheran preaching, most Lutheran service is basically you can have two signs. You can actually, if and he would make this joke, if, you, if your pastor's sick, just give your head elder these two signs and you should be good and you can just do it a few times and you're good to go. And the first sign is, you are a poor, wretched sinner. You should feel bad for all the sins that you do. <laughs> yes, I think I figured out who this is. And then the second sign is, but don't worry about it. Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven. So yeah, when I, a very quick story. When I did my chaplain training, one of the guys in my group was from this same conservative Lutheran denomination. As part of this, it was in like a long-term care, memory care, like old folks nursing home kind of place. And so we got a lot of chances to do a Bible lesson. We Usually one of us would do it every week and lots of chances. And every time mm-hmm. he did one, it did not matter what scripture he was talking about. The message was exactly the same. It yeah. was, we're sinners, but God has given us grace and we can be forgiven. And I remember I said to him one time, because, you know, we had to like evaluate each other, which was kind of a joke. But I remember writing on his form one time, like, that's good. That's true. But does God do anything else for us? <laughs> yeah. I never did get an answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, what did that, that's that probably captures most of everything that we believed or at least that we inherited and experienced being younger, right? Around salvation. I think so. Yeah. So then. Uh, we answered what it is, why do people need salvation? So the the next question is around our benefits. Um, and I'm just going to be honest, Ryan and I, we talked about this, and oh, this is hard for us because um, I'm already noting that this is much shorter than when we talk about the other ones because there's so much good in our background from some other things. This one really is one that we've, probably moved a little further away or at least let's 
go ahead. This one just is like he's like like Nate's saying, it's just really difficult. It um I think for both of us caused some pretty significant problems, some hurt, some issues, you know. And while we'll talk about it, and we did, I think, find a thing or two or some things that we can talk about that I think was a benefit that came from it. It was a very hard one and and um it's been hard to know. Like it took us a while as we talked about this to figure out what those things were. Yeah, and I'll give you a quick short, a story about um, what, through my ministry that I've been doing. I've noticed since I don't do salvation this way, or at least I don't tell the story this way. Some people will come to me and they will say they will demonstrate to me a huge amount of anxiety that they are not being told that they're a sinner and that Jesus died for them. And for me, that has highlighted this anxiousness, or not anxiousness, this um, hesitancy that Ryan and I both have, or at least that I have around this, is it's really hard for me to tell people that, knowing that they they are so dependent on that and they can't see some of the difficulties that come from that, come from that idea. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say pity is what I feel because that's pe- that's pejorative and that sounds like I'm better than them, but it is sadness. I feel sadness whenever somebody has to be told that they're a terrible person in order to feel the grace of God. And that is why this is so tough when it comes to the benefits for me. As someone who struggled with anxiety his whole life in some pretty severe ways, and you know, thank the Lord, it's much better place these days. But um, it's really hard for me to put someone in the place where they feel that kind of feeling. You know, um, yeah. I had a hard time accepting that that's really what God wants me to do. You know, and I remember some people talking about that feeling as being a good thing. You know, that that feeling is even the work of the Spirit, and. Yeah. I just, I was never comfortable with that then, although I wouldn't have been able to admit it. But I just, I, I don't think that that's the way that God works. And it, it really made me very hesitant to try and put someone in that place. Yeah, me too. And for me, I think like if I were to get to a benefit, I'll start by very simply saying this system works. It works, and it works to reinforce the system. That's usually all systems, no matter if they're good or bad. Their primary purpose is to sustain the system. So for this, it certainly works. It's it's ironclad in many ways. If you're within this system, it feels like it is right. It feels like it is even good, and it feels like this is, I want to say it does feel kind of holy. It feels kind of holy in the way that we talk about when we distinguish holiness as being set apart. It does feel that way, being within the system. So I want to give it as much benefit as of the doubt as I can and say that the system works and it does feel like it might be something that is holy and something that is good for people. Yeah. And, you know, related to that, like it, it does take something that is very, very hard to understand, very um, deep theological subject and makes it very concrete and understandable. Right. And we can Mm -hmm. talk about how that could be a problem too, but there is a benefit to that in that it, I think is trying to make salvation accessible in a way that it may not be if you go deeper with it than that. Right. The whole point behind the Romans road or the ABCs of salvation was that it's easy to understand, it's easy to tell, and it's easy to remember. And I don't think that comes from a bad place. I think that some of the effects are problematic, but I think that, like, I I think that that is something I understand how that could be helpful for people. You know, it makes it uh, concrete and applicable pretty easily. And it does, uh, it is a system that, the Bible can be translated into. So you have Adam and Eve, original sin. You've got the original promise in in Genesis 3. You've got the fulfillment, or I'm sorry, you've got the living out of sin in this world up until Jesus. And then Jesus comes and you see that there. So not only is it 
simple to understand logically what how that system works, that um, process works, but it also is easily transferable into scripture or vice versa in order for you to have a good handle of what you're looking for when you're reading the Bible or when you're hearing preaching. Because I, I suspect that many people, they don't think the way that I do, but many people probably like how simple some sermons are where, hey, that's that's the sin piece that goes over here. <laughs> and I point to where it is and I'm like, okay, that's ni- ni- nice and neat and tidy. It's good to go. Uh, oh, and here comes the Jesus part. That's that's where that is. I'm going to feel good here in a little bit. I'm really excited it's coming. And then, oh, there's that third part where I'm going to be told how I should live and really what kind of sins I should look out for and not do anymore and so on and so forth. And that all feels really good because um, it is simple. I love that. I love that phrase. It not only works, but it is simple and it's understandable. And that's really attractive to people, I think. Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it is even a key to the scriptures in a way, or it can't be, you know, like you just did. You can fit the entire narrative of scripture. You can make a narrative from scripture with that as your framework if you want to do that, you know. And so it just makes a lot of things um, accessible in a way that um, the Bible or theology or God often feel like is not accessible to the person who's not a pastor, theologian, scholar, what have you. Thanks for listening so far. Uh, We've received some feedback about our podcast, and one of the new ideas that we wanted to implement right away was to interact with something that we have seen or read or heard over the last few weeks and give our take on it. Kind of like a reaction, but not quite a reaction. What we really want to do is apply some of the stuff that we're talking about and into the real world so that we can see what it looks like to live in the frontier in real time almost. Instead of just looking at abstract concepts, we're going to look at different pieces of conversation in our culture around theology, especially within the church. So one of the things that we noticed this past week was a an article on Patheos. If you're not familiar with Patheos, Patheos is a blog site And it's got some very powerful, uh, culturally powerful people, as well as uh, scholars on there that write about current affairs and what's going on. And we came upon this article that was titled, When is it time to push back on unconditional love? And (laughs) it it is by, I'm going to mess up his name, but B.J. Oropesa, Oropesa. I'm sure if you just search uh, that title, you'll find it. Uh, it's got a picture of uh, something on fire on the when you search for it. So what we want to do is we want to jump into this. Uh, we're not going to read through the entire article, but we're going to highlight some of the things that Ryan and I have noted. I'll read the first paragraph and then let Ryan give his response. So here's the first paragraph. It's not the first of the article, but the first that we found. Instead of repentance, what I hear over and over ad nauseum are messages about God's grace and God's unconditional love, unconditionals in quotes. It is almost as though our ministers today think that the primary problem in the world is a lack of self-esteem. Apparently, they seem to be oblivious to the fact that God's unconditional love for some folks registers as a license to sin. They could go ahead and sin whenever they want because God will always forgive them. After all, he loves them, quote unquote, unconditionally. I think what's really tough is, well, there's a lot. But the first thing I notice is is that um, he talks about uh, God's grace and unconditional love. And then he says, it's almost as though our ministers think that the primary problem is a lack of self-esteem. And it's like, whoa, hold on. (laughs) Like, that's quite the leap. Like, how did we get from you know, we tell people God loves them too much because we're like, I just, I don't understand like 
I think I understand it because I think I see the straw man he's trying to make, right? This idea that, oh, we're only doing it so people will feel good about themselves. Kind right, of thing. right. And I think that that right there is deeply problematic because I don't, I, I mean, maybe somebody does that, but I think most of these people he's accusing, again, real or not, I think even if they are telling people God loves them in a way he doesn't like, it's not so they'll, quote, feel good about themselves, right? It's because they really believe people need to hear that God loves them. Yeah. I mean, that right there, that whole line we could talk about for quite a while, but we're trying to keep this fairly short. So I'll just say. Oh, and the next one's so much more fun. Yeah. Apparently, they seem to be oblivious to the fact that God's unconditional love for some folks registers as a license to sin. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that one? Because I need to take a minute and breathe a few, <laughs> for a few seconds. Let's let's take out the word unconditional just for a second. Does love really give people a license to sin? Like when I love my daughter, does that communicate to my daughter? Hey, you can do whatever the hell you want. Is that what that does? Uh, I mean, it no. sounds like he would say yes. I mean, I know. Right. What's the logic like, behind that? So it, it might be that it's unconditional love that does that when no matter what you do, you can you can still do what you want to, but that also recognizes a problem with the way we talk about sin. Sin is more of what we've done wrong rather than maybe what hurts us in our relationship to God primarily, but also our relationship to others. Right. And then he goes on to say that people like, so these people could go yeah. ahead and sin whenever they want because God will always forgive them. After all, he loves them, quote, unconditionally. And it's like, well, wait, doesn't God love sinners unconditionally, even if they keep sinning? Like, is right. that untrue all of a sudden? Like, it's just, I, I, I don't know that he would say that, but that's based, that seems to be what he's said with this, just in this one paragraph here. It's like, we need to stop telling people that God loves them because then they're going to keep sinning and we can't have that. So it's much better that we focused on wrath and burning, I guess. Yeah. You know, like it's just the, the, the intuitive and theological leaps he's made just in this one paragraph are kind of breathtaking. They're huge. And they ignore like a big thing. Like the one that I always use when I talk to people about this or around this is Romans, where it says, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So why is it that we believe that we can get away from sin, first of all, but second of all, that sin dictates how God loves us? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And yeah. And the other thing that really made me scratch my head as I was reading this article was, I don't know where this guy has been, but this is what we've done. What he wants is what we've done forever, at least for my whole lifetime, if certainly <laughs> before that. I mean, I grew up hearing all the time that, you know, we're all sinners and we better repent and repent, repent, repent. You know, he goes on later to say, when's the last time, Christian yeah. parent, that you've taught these things, to you, these repentance to your kids? And I was like, have you met my parents? Because that message was very clear, right? The churches I went to, that message was very, very clear. And the kind of churches he probably goes to are probably still yeah. still saying that over and over again. And I just I I, I want to just say to him like, look around you. Is yeah, this the, message that we've been re, you know repeating, repeating, and over and over again has it helped? Exactly. Well, and let's let's slow down just for a second because Ryan skipped over something, and he didn't skip; he skimmed over it, but. He actually asked, this author asked rhetorical questions. When is the last time we've taught these things in our churches? When is the last time a Christian parent has taught these things to their kids? When is the last time uh, we taught them that we will all stand before the Lord on Judgment Day to give an account? And Gosh. as Ryan just said, uh, all the time. <laughs> all the damn time. God it happens it. routinely every Sunday at least. I mean, that very line of teaching or what he's wanting is what caused a lot of my problems with fear and anxiety and like did a lot of psychological and spiritual damage to me. Um, and not just me. I mean, I've heard that around. But yeah. yeah, it's like, I don't know where he's been because we haven't, at least in the churches that, that you and I came from, we haven't gotten away from that message at all. Nope. I When I first arrived to the church that I'm at, Somebody said you need to treat you need to preach hellfire and heaven into people. 
hellfire and heaven into people. Yeah, hellfire to scare them, um, heaven to save them. And then this author, um, BJ, he he ends the second paragraph that we're talking about already. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes, and we made sure that they never heard of such a thing. Well, we've highlight the last part. Of course, they've made sure (laughs) that we've heard that. (laughs) Loud and clear. Loud and clear. Uh, But let's talk about that first part. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What what do you hear when you hear, or what do you think when you hear that? I mean, I'm not saying that there's nothing to the idea of fear of God, right? Because that's something that's in scripture and we could talk about that. However, I would also like to say to this person who has a PhD in New Testament. Have you read the first epistle of John where he says a lot about fear and how there's no fear in love and God is love. And those who fear are not completed in love because fear is about punishment. And I'm not, I'm not trying to quote scriptures at him because I don't really want to play his game. I'm just saying like, well, that was a little unfair. Perhaps I don't know the man, but all I'm trying to say is like, we've focused on fear forever And I almost wonder if this focus on fear and repentance that he's talking about is actually what contributed to some of the very problems that we have today. And in fact, the ones that gave rise to this article that he wrote. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I guess it's time to to say that, you know, he wrote this article about um, everything that's gone on since George Floyd was murdered by the police, you know, and... I don't know that we're going to get into that right here, but uh, his point is he's trying to say, like, I think he's trying to say, we need to tell the people who are, I'm sure he would say, uh, well, we'll just say demonstrating, you know, that mm-hmm. that they need to repent because they're sinning. And like, again, like, I just, I almost have a hard time knowing what to say to that because it's just so missing the point. It's just so tone deaf. It is. Let me read that paragraph verbatim. I don't agree with some of the language in here, but it's it's but it's the context of what Ryan is saying. I suspect that a quite a number of the writers, again, his language, not mine, used to attend churches and were once part of our youth groups. Okay, mental leap. Yeah. Um, We failed them when we stopped teaching them that we will be held accountable for our sins before our holy God unless we repent. But there's another problem. We no longer teach that people need to repent of their sins. Remember that word? Let me say that it again. Let me say that again, since it almost sounds offensive these days, even though Jesus and the apostles were not ashamed to say it, repent. And you know, since he brought it up, (laughs) nowhere in this article does he repent for anything, including, and I don't mean him personally, but all of us, right? Those of us who live in America, who are not black, right? Nowhere mm-hmm. does it say anything about we need to repent for being a part of and benefiting from the very system that has created and sustained this kind of thing that keeps happening, right? right. Black men and black people keep black women too keep getting killed by police over and over again and nowhere does he recognize or acknowledge that at if if we're talking about repentance well where's the repentance from us yeah yeah and i think that highlights really the frontier for me at least it's like okay so i might have problems with some of these con uh these concepts I might have some pushback that I would give, and certainly we've done that in this brief time. But the end result is really that you're using these things in order to have power over a group of people, uh, certainly moral power, but even religious power over a group of people without recognizing the context fully and without recognizing your own sins. I can't help but think of Matthew where Jesus says, you know, right. worry about the log in your own eye before you take care of the speck in someone else's, mm-hmm. uh, which is very verbatim or very, uh, it's very apropos to what's going on in this article. It's like, as Ryan just pointed out, and that's the challenge, right? It's it's not so much, and this is so beautiful for what we're doing in this podcast. It's not so much that we have anything against these ideas as such. These ideas as such, we'll talk about why they're problematic for us. 
But I think what people on the frontier are starting to notice is that not that they're problematic in and of themselves, but they're problematic in the way that they are used. Mm -hmm. And this is absolutely the problem. No one's saying that repentance is a problem. After all, Jesus said that. But how is repentance used? It's, it's, it's horrible here. It's horrible the way it's used. Right. It sure sounds like, given the way he's framed this article, nowhere does it recognize that the people demonstrating have this legitimate, like, past beyond legitimate grievance that they're trying to, to not just air a grievance, but to, like, protect their lives, right? And what, I, I don't know this man's heart, so I can't accuse him of this is what he's, what he's necessarily trying to do. But I can tell you how I read this article, right? How I heard it was, well... You all should repent because you're not being, you know, good and kind and Christian to the police, which to me sure sounds like, so let's go back to the way things were and not address the problem of black men and women getting killed by police over and over again and getting away with it. Right. Like, you can't, you just like, (laughs) I, I don't even have the right. It's not even that I'm angry at him. It's honestly not about him. I, I think he's just kind of representative of a lot of the problems we're talking about here, you know, of you should not, none of us should use anything and should not use Jesus to try and control people. Right. Yeah. Cause I think that's right. what this is, whether he intention, like whether it was intentional or not, I don't know. But the result is what I hear from this is it's not acknowledging a serious, serious problem and is instead saying, well, you all need to repent so that, we don't have to deal with this anymore. Right. I guess. I don't know. I think that's a good place to leave it. To be honest, we don't know. Um, part of being on the frontier is not knowing, but this produced some challenges for us as we read it. It, it gives us an opportunity to talk about some of the theological different difficulties around it, but most especially it shows what it looks like to live on the frontier is not just to see how it's being used and saying, you know, those concepts, they may not be helpful, but also point to th- there seems to be a problem because this is so easily done and mm-hmm. so easily accepted by people. Right. So let's take a step back and let's wait and think about what we're saying. And I will just say quickly as we wrap this up, if you're on the frontier with us or you're looking at it or however, whoever's listening to this, I just want you to know that repentance is fine and it's certainly important part of the Christian life. But hey, God loves you, okay? Unconditionally, no matter what you do, always and forever, God's love really is unconditional. That's central to the gospel and we're never going to, we never want that to be taken away, ever. 